Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? We are back for another Q&A session. I like the Q&As. I just, I feel like even hosting Q&A coaching sessions are so valuable for people and for me because I love to just riff and be asked questions on the spot. And two, I feel like a lot of people have the same questions. So let's do a bit. These questions were asked by real humans and make these up. (laughs) Um, I do not rehearse the answers before the episodes. I go live. I don't even look at the questions. I just copy and paste them. So let's start with question number one. How do you guide the student who uses stress as a way to avoid work? In reading that, I'm not sure I fully understand the question I mean, it's a question, of course, but um, let me let me dig into what I think this means and how it feels to me. I don't quite know what using stress to avoid work would be. Like, I don't know what an example would that would be unless a child is just saying, I am stressed and can't do X. If that's the case, we're talking about older kids because younger kids probably aren't saying that or recognizing that too. If we're talking about avoidance, here's the thing with avoidance. Even in reading this question, I it tells me a bit about the scenario. Students don't intentionally avoid work. Here's why. They might consciously choose not to do work, but, but here's what's underneath all of this. Eons ago, our brains developed out of hunter-gatherer tribes. We had to cooperate, communicate, be a part of the community to stay a part of that tribe and stay in the good graces of that tribe. And you had to do that or else you wouldn't survive because your tribe gets you alive. So naturally, now, eons later, we are still of that mindset. We still want to belong. In fact, like it's one of the deepest rooted biological needs, this concept, this idea of and feeling of belonging. So when someone avoids work in a classroom, they are known and looked at as an outcast. So they are avoiding work for a purpose, maybe because they are not seeing the value in the work, maybe because they want attention, maybe because they genuinely feel too stressed out to do the work, and that is possible. There are things in my life when I feel overly stressed and I have periods of high stress and high anxiety where... I just had a conversation with this about 
I just had a conversation about this someone the other day. It's like something as simple as taking vitamins. I have a lot of vitamins that I take. And on days where I feel super stressed, even though the vitamins are on the counter and I see them, I don't pause for a second to take them. And it actually feels like too much work to pause and take like four sips of water and take all of my vitamins. I'm like, don't have time for that today. Don't have the energy for that today. And I genuinely feel that way. And I skip the vitamins. And I know that they help me. I know that they do me good. And it's a, it's a helpful thing to do, but I feel too stressed out to take those vitamins. Am I avoiding the work intentionally? Am I like, mm, <laughs> I'm just not taking those vitamins today. I'm just going to be defined. No, I just feel like I don't have the energy to do it. So I think a lot of kids naturally with the way things are in the world right now and the way things have been the last two to three years, I think they genuinely feel too stressed out to do the work. If they are avoiding the work, I have to ask myself, what did I not do? Did I not help them to see the value in it? Did I not explain it well enough? There has to be some motivation to do the work. And yeah, maybe 90% of the class is willing to do the work without the motivation behind it because they are used to just following the rules and following the lead. But it is not people who follow the rules and do everything they're told that change this world. It is not those types of people that make a difference in this world. So I, instead of getting frustrated and upset, the chap won't do the work and getting curious. Why? Why does he or she not want to do this work? Why are they avoiding this work? Why is this not valuable enough for them to do? And is there some truth in their desire not to do the work? So I ask myself some questions and then I problem solve with them and I communicate with them and I have an open conversation about why are they avoiding the work? Why is this not a value to you? Why don't you want to do this? Or how can we find a way to help you do this? I had a kiddo when I taught third grade, my first year of teaching, I was 20 years old. Oh my gosh. No idea what I was doing. (laughs) I had an idea what I was doing. I went through a lot of preparation to get there, but I was not well-practiced and I was not ready for some of the kids I had in my class. Yet I think I handled them really well for being 20 years old and not having a lot of experience. A kiddo who struggled academically and struggled to fit in and definitely struggled emotionally refused to write. Like he would take like a black Sharpie and like defiantly black out, scribble, great holes, this third grade holes in his paper during writing time. I could have gotten upset and said, why is he avoiding this work? Or I can get curious and say, hmm, I wonder why doesn't want to do this work. I learn more. It's a weakness. He's uncomfortable. He's embarrassed. He doesn't want to write because it's so bad. He's embarrassed by his handwriting. He's embarrassed by his thought process. He's embarrassed because he's so far behind. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense why he's avoiding it now. How can I help him solve that problem? I don't need him to physically write it out. Maybe he can type it out. Maybe he can, he can audio it out. And that works for me because we're working on the writing process, not the physical act of writing. And we find a way to make it work for him. And it's different for him than it is the person next to him. And the person next to him may want to do it the way that he's doing. And that's okay. And I can say no, because in my classroom, equal is not equitable. We don't give everyone what is equal. We give everyone what they need, period. End of story. All right, moving on. (laughs) That was a... Oh, good one. That was a long, I actually haven't had someone ask a question like that before or quite that way. So I'm glad that person asked that question. What are some suggestions for self-regulation curriculums and coping strategies for students? 
well, naturally, <laughs> I have to recommend the the behavior hub, the organization I created. I do not sell a curriculum per se, but I do like, I don't sell it, but there's a framework I use, a self-regulation framework, which I designed out of using many curriculums and felt like all of them were missing something. So I put this together and feel that it works really well. Now, how one gets access to that is you can't actually buy it. Well, you can't buy it. You can buy the course, but typically it is given to people through workshops, training, and coaching. That said, if I have to recommend one type of curriculum, it's a little tough because I feel like most curriculums are missing components. And I also feel that one modality does not work for all kids. So one curriculum isn't going to give you everything, not for SEL. I also would need some more information. Like are we talking babies, young kids? Are we talking teenagers? Because different curriculums developed for different age groups will work for different students. If I'm talking about young kids, I, I do like generation mindful. I like their work. I like the program. I like their stuffed animals. <laughs> uh, so that's a great resource for teens. Um, gosh, I really don't know that I have a resource I would say that I've used. Most of the programs I know are more for early childhood and that's because school age kids and programs don't, unless they're like in guidance or something, they don't do a lot of SEL curriculum. They might embed it into what they're already doing, but there's not a curriculum that they use independently or like structured time during the day that is given to um, social emotional learning. So there aren't as many options for that. I was trying to think of one. I was There was something in my mind. That I was like, oh wait, there's something. What is it? I've used zones of regulation, um, not by itself, but components of it. That one's not bad. There's another one. Um, something about your engine. God, I can't remember. I don't know. There's also <laughs> not great examples. I'm like, oh, here's, I can't remember the name of it, but it's something about your engine. <laughs> the speed of your engine. It's like an OT program. Someone's going to know it. Hopefully leave a comment below letting you all know what it is. Uh, the other one or two um oh what is the i'm blanking i'm recording this too late in the day and i can't think there's like um what is it called oh i can't think of it um thinking of other self-regulation coping strategies there there are a lot of coping uh, strategy episodes, blog posts that I have on the Behavior Hub website. So I'd go listen to those. A lot of those things can be adapted for younger kids or older kids. I usually speak more to younger kids because it's easier to adapt up than it is to adapt down. So there's definitely stuff there. I'm trying to think of other books or resources or people that share really good coping strategies. I mean, it, it kind of depends on coping in which area. Like there are some that I have for anxiety Wendy Mogul is great for like communication, like how to change the way you communicate in terms of helping kids to regulate. Who else puts out good coping strategies? I mean, even a Google or a Pinterest search is going to yield you a ton of different strategies for coping. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's worth mentioning here. And I like... Oh, I'm going to butcher his name. I always do. 
I am Ganat. I am Ganat uh, is an author, childhood psychiatrist, psychologist, psychiatrist, I believe, and wrote lots of books on parent-child interactions. They can easily be used for education as well. There's a book that was extended out of his work, how to talk to kids so that they'll listen and listen so that kids will talk, something like that. It's like, forget their names. I need the, I need the visuals in front of me. It's like Elaine Faber Mash. Oh, I don't remember. And there's a second author. They're they're good. All of that is good work, but all around communication, not necessarily around coping exactly. And responsive, responsive something, responsive curriculum, responsive. There's a program for schools that's something about responsive. I don't know. There's, there's so much out there and there's always new stuff being developed that there's probably a ton of stuff I don't even know about. I stay in my little niche area and I produce <laughs> based on what I see in classrooms and what I am dealing with within my coaching. So I don't always do the best job of, of researching uh, to see what is the most recent as far as curriculum. I hope that was in some way helpful. <laughs> Not my best answer. All right, moving on. What are some strategies that we can use with our students who are experiencing stress and trauma? Also, if anyone has any resources around self-regulation curriculums or coping strategies, please comment below and let everyone else that listens here know what some options are. Okay. Strategies you can use with our students who are experiencing stress or trauma. Well, I would say that probably almost all students are experiencing stress and they are naturally. We all do experience stress and stress isn't always a bad thing. Stress is a uh, thing that helps us grow and it was developed to help save us. So it's not all bad, uh, but we can guess that probably students all, if not all, most have pretty high baselines for stress, which is not good. and a lot of them are probably experiencing chronic stress or anxiety or depression or all of the above. And there, there have been a lot of traumas in people's lives. I mean, even divorce is considered a trauma. It's a unit that kids see as one dividing into two, and therefore it is uh, viewed kind of subconsciously as a death. So think about how high the divorce rates are and how many kids go through a divorce. I mean, how many kids are exposed to trauma just by way of divorce? So what are some strategies that we can use with students who are experiencing these things? <laughs> Ironically, the question prior is like, what are some self-regulation curriculums and coping strategies? I think the best way that we can teach kids to respond to stress and trauma, because you can't always prevent it, is to teach them emotional regulation skills, teach them to recognize when they are dysregulated and get back into regulation. If they can do that, they can reset their baseline for stress and stay neutral more regularly and more frequently. So that's a more reactive way. What I would also say is that we could and, and really should work on ways to grow the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain, the young front part of your brain where your forehead is, top of your brain, because that's where logic and rationality live. So if we can strengthen that part, we can 
keep ourselves out of the emotional part of the brain, not always, but less frequent visits to the emotional part of the brain and think more logically and rationally. So things like mindfulness, breath work, um, stretching, yoga, uh, drawing, creative arts, drama, um, anything that involves slowing the brain down, even games like Jenga, Kerplunk, Twister, games that require us to stop and think before we act. If you have to stop and pause and think, that grows that part of the brain. So again, I have lots of episodes on the podcast and on the blog page for resources for helping kids cope because coping can fit into many different buckets. It can be around communication. It can be around aggressive behavior. It can be around anxiety. It can be around depression. So which, which part of coping, what are we coping with? What's the exact or some of the more specific kind of symptoms? What is the most common stressor for students? Ooh, I don't know. There's nothing to answer for that. It depends on a couple of things. Age of students, which age group stressors are different per age group. Where do they live? City versus country versus suburbs. Different stressors based on those things. I mean, think about like a city. There's noise. That's a stressor. It's an ongoing stressor that really never shuts off in a city. Um, if it's in the... Uh, countryside, it could be like disconnection because you're so far removed from socialization or peers or civilization. <laughs> um, in if I go like middle of the line, like middle school, high school, and high school is not middle of the line, but middle school, even even late intermediate, I think a lot of the stressors revolve around belonging, a sense of belonging and clicks and peers and groups. So I would say that's a huge, huge stressor naturally for that age group. They're entering into the age where they are looking for a mate. So naturally they want to like be popular and be connected and be involved. If it's for younger kids, probably more, gosh, um, like primary school, what's causing them stress? probably a little bit more attachment-based, like they need a little bit more attention from us. So if they're not getting the attention they need in, in the family system, that's probably a stressor. If their families are stressed, that's a stressor. So it could really be a lot of different things. It really depends on a lot of factors. So I would need some more information. How many ways can a student react to stress? Oh, whew. Lots of ways. <laughs> I think everyone reacts to stress differently. Everyone has different levels of resiliency. Resiliency can be taught and learned. Some resiliency is probably more genetic. We, some of us are more genetically predispositioned uh, to have the skill of resiliency or resiliency skills. Um, here's a perfect example. I was raised in a very challenging childhood environment, as was my brother. My brother's older. My response was to become a little more perfectionist, to stand out, to, to play sports, to do well academically. His was to hide and shy away a little bit more. I naturally had a lot of friends in a lot of different groups. He did not. He stuck to one particular group. So he was more inward. I was more outward. I was a little bit more extroverted. He was a little bit more introverted. How can we both in the same environment react to stress very differently? We, we coped very differently. 
So it can be, I, I would say it's probably one bucket or the other inward versus outward. So be mindful of that because we usually miss the students who cope more inward because they're quieter, they're overlooked, they're well-behaved more or less. And for me, when I'm looking for signs of stressors or re kids reacting to stressors, I'm looking for changes in behavior, especially sudden and big changes in behavior. Like if a, a child starts like acting disrespectful in class, that's, that's a pretty big marker. Like something's not right. Uh, if a child is disconnecting from peers and pulling away from peer groups, that's a sign to me that there's a lot of stress somewhere, something's going on. So just behavioral changes or behavioral abnormalities for each age group, like what is normal for each age group looks different. So if we know it looks normal developmentally and we know the student's not doing that for a prolonged period of time or like significantly far away from that milestone, then we can guess that something might be up. So everyone responds and reacts differently. It depends on a lot of factors, genetics, skills, family systems, community around and support around the child. So it really just depends on a lot of different things. No listener question because we answered all the listener questions today. <laughs> so to wrap up the show, I'm going to share with you the try to home tip, which is focus on one. What does that mean? I learned not so long ago that my desire to research and learn and gain more information about all things resulted in reading multiple books and listening to multiple podcasts and having multiple audiobooks all at one time. Like I'd be working through like six different things. Mine is in six different places, jumping between six different sources of information. Try and choose one, like maybe one audiobook, one real physical book and one podcast, or just choose one of the three of them. But um, it's fine to not finish an episode and just decide you're not going to go back to it. It's not good to be jumping between a bunch. Why? Because your brain's just like flip-flopping and it's causing your nervous system to be dysregulated. The constant like influx of information and different types of information from different sources just keeps you in this heightened state. And I didn't realize, I didn't know that I was kind of seeking that and used to being in that high, tight, tense, energetic, fast-moving state and... I didn't realize that I was filling myself up and keeping myself there by reading all these things and listening to all these things and taking in all these things. It's the same too for like TV shows. Like I'm not encouraging you to watch TV shows because I I think that they're very addictive and they don't add a whole lot of value to our lives. I am also guilty of watching them. That said, what I try not to do is jump between a bunch of shows. If I'm going to watch a show, I'm going to stick with one show. All right, that's it for today's episode of Returning to Us Podcast. Remember... Try it at home tip, which is stick to one. And if you are looking for more areas of stress, <laughs> no, let me strike that and reverse it. If you are looking for more support in the areas of stress, trauma, behavior, the brain, I would love to be a part of your journey to healing. So I created the Behavior Hub, which offers a variety of services from coaching to courses to even university credit for some of the courses for parents, teachers, educators, people in the field that directly works with tiny humans. If you want to learn more, pop on to the Behavior Hub website and you can contact me anyway through that website. And don't forget to comment below, leaving us all of the SEL curriculum resources and coping strategies since I couldn't remember any of them today. <laughs> I'll probably have to come back to that question. I'm definitely going to come back to that question. <laughs> 
So listen to the next episode or many episodes into the future, because that's probably going to be one of the listener questions in the future. Until next episode, I am Lauren Spiegelmeyer, and thank you for joining me.